1: The suckers
0: going on. Welcome everyone to the Playing Footsie Show. I'm Steve W and Steve D is with me. Uh, Paul is not here this evening. We do know where he is, but for unspecified reasons to do with Tom Cruise, he can't come and join us this time. Look forward to seeing him next time and finding out what he's been up to in the last couple of weeks. But for now, Steve and I will keep you company. Uh, thanks for spending your time with us in advance. Um, it's been an interesting week in markets and I guess in the world as well. Steve, how are you doing?
1: Um, Well, I guess I'm not as busy as Paul, he's just come out of that internment camp in North Korea and now he's hanging around with Tom Cruise, Um, he's a a busy old boy isn't he, but um, sad news for us both Steve, I I think nobody else in the world likes cricket, but I know me and you do like it a lot, and I missed the cricket today, I was supposed to be at the test, but unfortunately I couldn't make it, and uh, I, I actually bumped into my father today, who was also supposed to be going, and it looks like he couldn't make it either. So that was uh, particularly interesting for us, but we've looked like we've missed a pretty decent day of cricket, Steve.
0: Yeah, I I did miss a decent day of cricket. I was actually quite slow to catch up on this because I've been following uh, and, and following very loosely here in the way that one might sort of follow a soap or something. The 100, uh, because that's on bits of the telly and YouTube and stuff that I can see. Uh, a little bit easier so i've been watching matches in that which shows yeah, a pretty decent one today in the women's stuff where one side basically ran the other one over i don't really know one franchise for another but quite enjoying watching that sort of stuff uh mm. if you've been enjoying the 100 rather than the test let us know if you've been watching the test today then well congratulations to you and you're uh, well ahead on us too how's the world of stock markets
1: um it's been okay for me. I've I had a bit of a dodgy start to the week, but um this is Thursday's record uh recording, so um it's been up for me the last couple of days. I think I've had a couple of one percent days. Um I've been doing a bit of buying. I've continued my sort of foray into the yield chasing as I'm gonna call it. Um I've bought a couple of Swiss companies. I've bought um Strauman Group. Uh they do dental implants, they're probably the leader in this sector. I bought Sonova Group. Um they're uh a company that deal with primarily in sort of, sort of high tech hearing aids, um, but they also own the Sennheiser brand, which is quite interesting because they're going to damage your ears and then in future uh, help you hear again through their um, through your hearing, you know, through hearing aids. So the the, the journey of the ear, as I've been calling it uh, to myself in my head. Uh, I've also bought the train company Alstom again. I've been slowly edging into that one and um, German based Adidas as well. So. Um, you know, my yields definitely increasing. in 0.5 now, 1.6, 1.19 and 2.1 out of them. So decent, decent yields out of all four and growing. And the rest of my cash, Steve, has gone into joining uh, Warren Buffett in his arbitrage player in Activision Blizzard. Uh, are you interested in that
0: one? I am interested in that one, Steve. Yes. And actually, it's the one that I think a lot of people should be more interested in for reasons that don't really apply to me. So if you think the markets are going to be a bit choppy uh, coming up, and that's the kind of thing that worries you, I don't. I think Activision Blizzard is going to get moved around much by the kind of general forces moving markets. I think it's probably fairly resistant to interest rate hikes or higher or lower inflation at the moment or uh, anything to do with oil prices for, for what it's worth. I think it's going to move by itself uh, fairly soon, either upwards or downwards quite sharply in a way that will leave the kind of general market behind it. Um, but if you're looking for somewhere to kind of hide your money in a stock while you uh, sort of ride out volatility, that's not the worst idea. I do own this um, largely for the the reason that I guess everybody does at the moment, right? You think the upside is kind of worth it uh, and you think the downside is kind of worth it. So this is a kind of straightforward expected utility sort of thing, right? You work out what your upside is and then multiply it by a probability and you work out your downside and you multiply that by a probability and you work out whether you get a number big enough by the end. Um you can kind of guess at probabilities as much as you like or work out what sort of probability you need to make it worth it for you. But it's it's not a massively complicated investment at the moment, is it?
1: No, and I think... Um, I know we're quite sort of weary of uh, these big tech companies buying, well, anybody, uh, never mind a sort of 75 billion acquisition or whatever the price ended up being. But I think just on this occasion... Uh, I would be. I think it would be tough for for somebody like Lena Khan to send Activision employees back to you know a fully Bobby Kotick ran company. I think that would be pretty tough. They've had such such horrible labor problems uh, and labor disputes that I think this one's just going to get let through. Uh, you know, to, to make staff happier. And that's my, that's my basis. That swung me. That's my argument here. That swung me towards, actually, I think this is, this is going to go through, but um, what do you think? Yeah, we chatted about this one the other
0: week, didn't we? I mean, I was saying, uh, well, we were saying together, I think that there are various sort of potential hurdles along the way. Most of those hurdles look like Microsoft related hurdles rather than Activision Blizzard related hurdles. Um, And, This is a cash deal, as I understand it, from Microsoft, so it's not particularly beholden to the Microsoft share price uh, in any way or or any kind of room for um, volatility around there. Uh, Yeah, I think this is interesting. I think a little while ago I was struggling to find places to put money, sort of about a week ago uh, or so, say. And Activision Blizzard struck me as a sort of fairly sensible kind of idea, um, especially when you think stuff is slightly over. Price, it's not quite there anymore. It's, uh, I've had the same sort of week as you for what it's worth. A slowish start, um, having done a bit of shuffling around on Friday, stuff became immensely cheaper on Monday. Um, and I guess what I'm thinking then is that Activision Blizzard is, isn't quite where I'm putting money at the moment, but it's a very useful looking place to go and hide it if I feel like I'm running out of ideas for what to buy and need to rethink some investing theses and so on. Although, Today's show's got a couple of things that are, are on my sort of radar and I'm interested in having a look at them. But outside of stocks, uh, I'm in the process of moving house, which is uh, awful. Uh, basically, we're in a, a situation where we're moving out of the place that we're renting and we're moving for the hopefully short term uh, in with a friend because our uh, chain isn't ready to complete. So I've got a short term move and then a longer term move. So much like Paul, I've no idea where I'll be next week, uh, but I will probably be on the podcast from somewhere. Uh, most likely not this room, but um, we shall see. I guess. Yeah, house moving. You've done that fairly recently, right, Steve?
1: Yeah, it's an absolute baller And mm. like the first time I did it, uh, I I thought like, look, I'm going to be the. I don't need movers. Who needs movers? They're just a complete waste of money. And I, I did the whole thing myself. Uh, and then we had a. Um, essentially, we bought the house and I fixed it up for a week before our our um, rental was ended. And on the last day, I moved everything in. Um, and that was the worst experience of my life. This time round, I hired movers. I carried one thing in. I dented the wall with the one thing that I carried <laughs> in, and I wouldn't have had it any other way.
0: Yeah, we have hired movers as well. A lot of our stuff is going to have to go into storage uh, in the sort of short, medium term, but I've never used movers before. I've always done the moving stuff before, but we've now, in our sort of, I think, three or four years, however long we've been in this house, acquired stuff that is... Basically, prohibitively big uh, mm. for it to be worth me doing it. And it would basically be me doing it because we have a small baby, which means that my wife is going to be indisposed with him. And I'd have to cart around massive, like garden planters and um, a dressing uh, unit thing that is, I know exactly the size of our car because I remember when we got it, it was pretty much exactly the size of our car when we brought it home. So that's kind of, it's going to take prohibitively many trips uh, for me to do that. So we're also hiring movers this time. Expensive, isn't it?
1: uh it is but i think you'll look back on it the day after you move when you're not still in bed at three o'clock in the afternoon and be like that was worth it Uh, i think it was worth it
0: Mm, good okay well that'll be nice anyway um okay let's get to some news and some actual show stuff that isn't to do with just us and our personal lives in cricket and moving house which is basically all my life is at the moment apart from a small baby paul's not here we'll talk about cricket all day (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's true. Paul is one of the people who doesn't uh, like cricket, so if you, I doubt he's made a video of any sort recently, but if you like something that isn't about cricket, go and check out his channel, um, uh, especially if you like burgundy things. Anyway, um, we've got some news, we've got some earnings, we're running out of earnings because it's reaching the end of earnings season a little bit, and then we've got a round of stocks with Paul because we only found out about 15 minutes ago that he isn't actually going to be here. So uh, here we go. News, Steve, what's been happening in the world of Teladoc?
1: Uh, interesting news, really. So yesterday, um, just, just after market closed, the Washington Post broke a story, um, quite an interesting story as well, actually, because uh, the, the workers were talking in, in secrecy. They've apparently been forced to sign an NDA. But it looks as if um, Amazon Care um, is shutting down. So Amazon Care is the the uh, Amazon-owned telehealth product that was uh, going to come and eat Telerock's lunch. Um, it was uh it had signed on a, a couple of fairly big name clients and uh it had quite broad usage within Amazon itself. Uh but I quote there's a little um statement here from Christina Smith. She's a a, a spokeswoman for Amazon. Uh this decision wasn't made lightly and only became clear after months of careful consideration, said Amazon Senior Vice President of Health Neil Lindsay. Actually, <laughs> sorry, this is from Neil Lindsay, not from Christina Smith. I'm reading her quote from above. Um so although our enrolled members have loved many aspects of Amazon care, it is not complete enough offering for the large enterprise customers that we have been targeting and thus wasn't going to work long term. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's quite interesting. Um, but I've got a funny feeling to you that this is not going to be the win for Teledot that Wall Street thinks because... Amazon are buying one medical and they're trying to buy Signify Health. And these are sort of more complete telehealth uh, sort of service-based offerings. So to me, this kind of just feels like Amazon are switching off their own version and they're just going to roll that business into another. Do you have any thoughts on that? A couple of quick thoughts
0: here. One is that I, I prefer the idea... This is the only kind of... Uh... Not red flag, but the thing I dislike about Amazon, uh, for what it's worth. You don't have to love everything about every investment you own, right? There's going to be something mm-hmm. you like better than others, and they're all going to have things that you think, yeah, I would. They did things differently. I don't like the way they keep getting distracted by more and more and more different things. Uh, this is a point we'll come back to here. I'm not convinced I want Amazon messing around in telehealth businesses. I'd rather they stayed focused on the things that they're uh, that are more core to their operations at the moment. But still. From a Teladoc perspective, and we've covered this or talked about this stock quite a lot on the uh, the show in recent months and years. On the face of it, if you think that's the win that people sort of, it looks like at first sight, that's an almighty proof of a moat, right? I mean, no mind about switching costs and scale and uh, barriers to entry and so on and so forth. If Amazon came and tried to disrupt your business and then they backed off again, um, that must be like the moat of the century uh, around that business. And Teladoc isn't typically a business I think of as having much of a moat because telehealth is something of a commodity.
1: And, that, and that's true. Uh, I think the uh, I, for them to back off and say that they they think that it's because they they don't have a full service offering. Well, that indicates that somebody else does, doesn't it? So um, yeah, that's interesting for Teladoc. I think I mean they did pretty well off the back of this today. They went up. Um, about four percent um but um american well am well went up about seven percent and i saw a couple of others that had gone up about one or two percent now that could be that news but it also could be that they've, they've um just sprung to mind that they've actually teamed up with some uh, a company called cloud dx so they're going to be using their solo platform in um, about four thousand hospitals across the world as well so uh, one of the things we said that could be a bullish thing if teladoc could breach it was was having uh, like a, a pre-diagnosis before people rush to hospital. One of the things that would lighten the load on A&Es and um, acute assessment units and things like that uh, would be that if, if they could just screen it and say, look, that's just a headache, have a have a glass of water. And it looks like they're at least going to get a chance to try that. Um, 4,000 hospitals across the world. I don't think that's a massive start. I don't think it's going to be a massive load on their network, but, you know, that that moats can come from scale uh, I guess is what I'm trying to get at and Teladoc seems to be just sort of angling towards that that scale Yeah, you beat me
0: to it I'd written down that I was going to retract my previous point about worrying about the technicalities of moat This is fairly obviously a scale based uh, moat Scale Hmm. typically has to do with um, the market being such that it has a participant in it and it's not worth another participant involving themselves because there just wouldn't be enough business for either uh, company in this situation. Not something Amazon has historically bothered itself with uh, from what I can see of it. They like getting involved in things like Deliveroo where there isn't really much of enough of a um, business to to sustain more than one um, thing. But mm. uh, yeah, reasonably encouraging for TeleDoc, I guess. I mean, it's a company that's been... At the moment, working off its kind of Levongo right down. and it's probably still doing it, to be honest, we'll see next quarter, I suppose. Hmm. But uh, that seems to be the kind of main dominating factor, and it's nice to see things kind of quietly falling the right way uh, for it, whether you own the stock or not.
1: Yeah, I guess the the other thing that we should really just tack on to the end of this before we before we shuffle on is that if Amazon can't make it in this industry, if Amazon, with all of its millions and all of its will cannot make it in this industry. The little VC companies that Teladoc was telling you in the last couple of quarters have been putting a dent in their revenue growth and in their, in their margins. Um, They're not likely to succeed either. Um, So that just lends even more to me thinking that perhaps Teladoc could be, you know, the one company that kind of makes it through this little mess and Mm. uh, comes out to do pretty well. I mean, it's, it's not egregiously priced anymore. Um, Considering where it has been, um, so I think it's a still an interesting stock. I haven't bought any in a really long term, and and every time I read something about it, I sort of get like, like pushed back to like why aren't you why aren't you buying this company? It it might be the one.
0: It's very much gone out of fashion, hasn't it? And it's a, mm. a company in a stock, I guess, more specifically a stock, really that. Um, It rouses passions in people, mostly, I think, because of its associations with Cathy Wood. Uh, It was the largest stock in her genomic uh, revolution ETF at one point. It might still be, for all I know. It's not entirely obvious to me. This is not my point, by the way. This is stolen from Josh Brown on CNBC. It's not entirely obvious to me what that has to do with genomics, uh, for what it's worth. It looks, yeah, not an awful lot at all. So if you think the future is kind of gene editing, I don't think Teladoc are about to edit any genes anytime soon. But... Um, if you think the future is kind of disruptive healthcare. And this was a big thing for uh, Kathy Wood. And I think a lot of people, with some justification, got kind of annoyed about that. But then, you know, we're post-pandemic and turns out people are going to go to the doctors again and lots of things are kind of going wrong in that direction and we think things were overblown. But all of these things can fall too far, I think. I mean, Buffett says that Look, any business at the wrong price can be a bad investment. It's not the case that any business at a very low price can be a good investment. But Telelock is definitely in the category that you know, at the right price, I think it's not nothing. Um, there's a lot to kind of work off there, but it's it's got something going for it at the very least.
1: Yeah, I I agree. I think it's one of those stocks that I think you're right. It's sort of been maligned by its association to Kathy Wood, who I think. She keeps trying to make it the biggest position in her portfolio. So potentially it's trying its best not to be. But um, I think it's worth another look for everybody. I, I you know, I'm not I'm not saying that it's a screaming buy at the moment, but I think quietly confident that this business could turn itself around and continue to just keep growing.
0: Let's talk about a different company then for a moment. That's also a kind of pandemic pandemic play insofar as we believe in such things uh, for a moment. Just based on what you were teasing me with before the um, show, I feel like we have different ideas about this one, but I've not thought about it much lately. The hell is going on with Peloton lately?
1: Okay. Um, So Peloton released its earnings this week. I think it was yesterday. Uh, But really, I want to just flash back to Tuesday first because... Like, these earnings were dismal, right? But there was a telltale sign beforehand that they were going to be. And the press release a day before um, earnings stated that they were signing a deal with Amazon to distribute their products and sell them on Amazon.com. Like, earnings was 24 hours away. So why couldn't they wait? Well, we got the answer on Wednesday, Steve, because they didn't want to wait because that's important news and it would have been absolutely buried in this shit show. I mean, revenues... Uh, let's just let's just group them all together. Revenues, gross profit, gross margins, adjusted EBITDA, adjusted EBITDA margin, EPS, free cash flow, subscriptions, connected uh, fitness, digital, and their chain all missed consensus expectations. They also missed on their guide for gross profit, revenue, gross margin, adjusted EBITDA, adjusted EBITDA margin, uh, and connected fitness subs. The only thing I actually beat on was um, their connected fitness revenues, uh, and that was only because um, Wall Street thought they would be extremely crap, and they were just quite crap. Um, But I've got some highlights for you. Uh, There was some positives in the report. Uh, Members were up 15% year-on-year to about 6.9 million. Subscribers were up about 27% year-on-year to 2.9 million. Subscription revenue was up 36% to 383 million. There's some lowlights as well, Steve. Uh, Connected fitness products revenue was down 55%. Uh, There was a net loss of 1.2 billion. Free cash flow was minus 412 million, which is about well, it's over 10% of today's market cap, Um, but look, here goes getting rid of the shops uh, which this has to be the long term focus of Peloton, right? Like like, No no one needs a treadmill shop, that's a really good move, digital only distribution using Amazon as the courier not trying to build out your own courier service, moving production elsewhere to to another country where you think you can actually make a profit on the bikes you sell because they're still losing on the sale of a bike, I think I smell a turnaround story here. I don't, I don't think they're going to get back to their old ties. I think I don't think that's going to happen. But I think if the new the new CEO can pull all of that off, I, I think this might work. The new CEO has the right ideas, doesn't he? I mean, I, I mm. have
0: what is arguably my favorite quote. I mean, we talk about Buffett quotes and stuff, right? And there's a lot of really good Buffett quotes. You shared a very nice one with me the other day, actually. But here is my favorite quote uh, from a business person. It just goes to the core of what everything is about. Uh says Barry McCarthy, the new um, CEO at Peloton. We have to make our revenues stop shrinking and start growing again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, cash is oxygen and oxygen is life, he says. I mean, he's not wrong, but um, the idea that that's in any way news or mention worthy or some sort of a plan of, look, the plan is to make the revenues go up, not down uh, very roughly. Uh, that is kind of where it's at. I'm suspicious of detecting a, a turnaround story here, but I do think that Peloton has suddenly gone from having all of the wind behind it to having all of the wind now in its face. Um, so when I think about kind of pandemic plays, think about Teladoc, think about Zoom, think about Peloton uh, as another good example for the moment. All of those got me push pushed from everybody being at home. Um, fair enough. And in the case of Peloton, the kind of talk was that no one would ever go to the gym again, which was clearly rubbish, but um, you yeah, know, there was talk of that at the time. Now Peloton has something else going as a headwind that, say, Zoom doesn't, from what I can see of it, which is that nobody got any money uh, anymore, and the cost of living has gone through the roof. And Zoom probably is less bothered about that, I think, than uh, something like Peloton is, because you have a feeling that subscription is going to go quite fast. Um, and I'm very wary of the idea that when people are trying to work out how to make their energy costs, they're going to be also working out how to buy a massive treadmill and install it in their house. So I think there's a kind mm. of pressure on them as a sort of discretionary purchase that there wasn't on maybe Zoom or TeleDoc or maybe pick some other your favorite pandemic plays, Netflix, for instance, or whatever. Um, I guess, so I can see that, yeah, it might be kind of sinking further than it ought to be. Uh, at the moment, and maybe those headwinds will abate. I still think it's a lousy business, for what it's worth. Uh, the selling on Amazon thing, my reaction was, were they not doing that before? Um, it was it was just a direct to consumer uh, thing. huh? I knew there's a palace on there, are a bunch of palace on shops because um, there's one in Oxford near where I live, and I've never seen anybody in it, and I imagine it won't be there much longer. Uh, but it's yeah, that struck me as a thing they really ought to have been doing ages ago, selling stuff on Amazon. <laughs>
1: Well, potentially, but you've got to think. This goes back to the old story of Thornton's. When Thornton's was this kind of, uh, this kind of executive brand, you could only go to Thornton's for Thornton's chocolate, and and it did incredibly well off the back of that. But they wanted more. They got greedy, so they pushed into. Uh, into your supermarkets, your Asdas and your Morrisons. And, and what that did was it took away the exclusivity of a Thornton's brand. That's the idea between, behind like an, an exclusive brand that you can only get from one place. And Peloton obviously thought they could replicate this with an exercise bike. And and evidently, uh, exclusivity doesn't work on exercise bikes. And I guess we probably, in hindsight, could have guessed that. Um, but... Do uh, uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just a funny old... Uh, it's a funny situation to be in, isn't it? I think sometimes in the hype of everything, when you see people, you see, especially Peloton's revenue was increasing 90 percent at a time. There was quite a few times you must have sat there and thought, well, maybe I'm stupid. Maybe it's me. Maybe it's me who doesn't think that you know a, a eighteen hundred pound or whatever it was exercise bike is an exclusivity thing. And I guess we're in the tail end of that now, are in the, You know. But what what I'm trying to what I'm trying to express is I don't look. I don't think Peloton's going to go back to being that. That business in the in the pandemic, but what I think they could potentially spit out is a sustainable business Mm -hmm. where you know Peloton are trying to deliver their own things. They've got vans, they've got drivers. There's absolutely no need for that. It's just not needed. If they can get their production outsourced out of America into wherever, get a lower cost of production, get a cheaper bike, get the bike out with a subscription to customers using Amazon's warehouses. You know, Peloton has no need to hold massive amounts of stock. Just get it held in an Amazon warehouse. Get Amazon to sort it. Get Amazon to deliver it. You know, cut that whole cost side out of your business. Cut all the shops out of the business. That's a lot of spend there, that Peloton. Are, that's a lot of spend. And they cut all that out. I mean, this is an 1,800 quid bike that people still are still going to buy in, Steve. There must be. There must be some revenue in that. There must be a business in that.
0: I sort of feel like there there must be. Um, as you pointed out, though, it's an 1,800 quid bike. I feel like that's going to get you exclusivity of a sort kind of by itself, right? I mean, I'm not sure. The, the, the kind of comparison I have in mind here, the difference with Thornton's, right, is that I probably could go and buy Thornton's chocolate if I saw it in a Tesco or something like that. I wouldn't buy a Peloton if I saw it in a Tesco, uh, just because I can't afford the damn thing. I wonder whether there's something similar going here with iPhones, basically. They're supposed to be. and Apple is a, a potential takeover candidate we heard talks about a while ago for for Peloton. Um, I lately heard someone, or well, they were touting on Motley Fool, the idea, they weren't touting this, sorry, they are reporting someone else touting it, uh, that Amazon might try and buy Peloton, so they can just lump Peloton stuff into their um, Amazon Prime thing, just to make Amazon Prime a bit more... Um, hmm. attractive and so on I I wonder about that I, I'm i not sure that they've quite worked out how to get these I think the thing that needs to happen for Peloton is that their stuff needs to get easier to store in people's houses basically um, I have a close error I don't really need another one uh, for the moment so I feel like that's the kind of bit that I'm waiting to happen here I'm waiting for it to come out with some sort of product Connected Fitness sounds great but I'm not quite sure that I think I've seen the thing that really does it for
1: them yet hmm. fair enough Uh, Steve, you've covered Salesforce. Is that uh, next? I've been looking
0: at Salesforce. Yeah, they've reported earnings. I always like it when Salesforce reports earnings because it tells me the earnings season is nearly over uh, and I can stop raiding through these things every day. So Salesforce, um, they're an interesting stock for a number of reasons. They gave their guidance for what they call fiscal year 2023 because they think that's what year it is because of complicated accounting reasons and stuff. So it took a little (laughs) bit of working through on some of this stuff for me. Uh, but here's the general sort of gist of things. The market didn't like it, by the way, and I knew the market wasn't going to like it because my phone was blowing up with updates saying that nearly everybody from Citigroup through Barclays through Morningstar uh, had downgraded this stock or at least lowered their price target or fair value estimate on it uh, this morning. I had notification after notification after notification. It went down about 7.5% out of the gate. I'm not quite sure where it ended up today. But okay, apparently a disappointing sort of um, quarter then for Salesforce. What did that look like? Revenues then were 7.72 billion, which was up 22%, according to the numbers I'm looking at here. Different in constant currency, slightly higher, but let's call it 22% for the moment. EPS, you have a choice uh, of EPS number. It either made 7 cents per share, or it made $1.19, depending on whether you take gap earnings or non-gap earnings. And when I looked at this, I thought to myself, I'm going to talk about this for ages just to annoy Paul but Paul isn't here and he probably isn't listening so I'm going to talk about this for ages uh, mostly because that distance between those two things and you hear a lot of gap versus non-gap stuff but the distance between those is like 17 times and I thought well it's probably worth trying to figure out what that is in that case because I get that sometimes companies think well uh look gap accounting doesn't give a true and fair reflection of our, our company and where we're at and our progress and so on. So we're going to tell you a number that we think does give a fair reflection of it, but then the question becomes, well, what is it that's kind of the difference between the two? Um, okay, here we go then. Uh, the difference between the two EPS numbers is that they're non-GAAP EPS, the bigger number, the number they'd like you to pay attention to, at $1.19, is leaving out the following things. It's leaving out amortization of intangibles for $0.49, cents, stock-based comp for $0.85, cents, and some income tax adjustments for a boost of uh, $0.22. Cents. So those are the three things that they're suggesting they uh, leave out because I'll read you the bit from the um, slideshow. Non-GAAP diluted earnings per share excludes, to the extent applicable, The impact of the following items, stock-based comp, amortization of purchased intangibles, and income tax adjustments. These items are excluded because the decisions that give rise to them are not made to increase revenue in a particular period, but instead for the company's long-term benefit over multiple periods. In other words, what they're telling you here is that, look, it's not here to distort the number for this particular occasion. It's there to give you a view for how we're moving in general terms. Make of that what you will. That um, raises the question of kind of stock-based comp. I guess. And whether it's a good thing, there was sort of 85 cents worth of stock-based comp uh, that they were adding back in. It's by far the biggest thing uh, that they're adding back into their EPS to get to to non-gap stuff. Steve, do you have a view on stock-based comp?
1: I have the same view as you on stock based comp and that I don't like it but I think I'm fairly happy with a company like Salesforce that's growth outstretches the its growth in its top line uh, outstretches its growth in shares outstanding um, which Salesforce just about does uh, it is pretty uh, egregious with its stock based compensation this is Probably part of the reasons why it wins awards every year is for being the best place to work because it's just throwing money at its employees. But also you've got to factor in the fact that, you know, it makes a lot of acquisitions and it makes a lot of big acquisitions and bringing those people on board and keeping those staff and retaining those staff. You have to give them stock in an accelerated fashion or replace the stock that you have uh, You know that you've bought off them uh, when you uh, when you acquire the company. It's about keeping. There's a reason you buy a company like MuleSoft, and it isn't because you quite fancy owning MuleSoft. It's that the staff that built MuleSoft you think are incredible, and you want them as part of your organization. So. Uh, I think that's coming to an end for Salesforce. So I would be intrigued to watch that stock-based compensation uh, metric from this point onwards. But Steve, I'll let you carry on because I don't want to steal your from Yeah,
0: I also would be um, interested to watch that keep going. You made the point that we make a lot because we both think it's the right one, which is that, look, if you want to grow your top line at a particularly high rate, you will probably have to pay for that somehow. And it's okay to pay for that using equity if you want, especially if you're a company like Salesforce in growth mode but you hadn't better pay more equity than you're getting back in terms of growth. Uh, It's a sort of straightforward thing here. Okay, so revenues were up 22%, which to me sounds like a fairly decent number and sounds fairly close to what I was expecting from Salesforce. The question then becomes, why does stock down so much uh, at 7.5%? And the answer is, well, certainly here's one reason, and it's that guidance isn't that good. Um, Or at least guidance came in lower than analysts were expecting, and you disappoint the analyst and your stock goes downwards. This is why it's getting downgraded a fair bit. So, um, guidance for the year was for around 31 billion. uh, Analysts looking for around 31.8 billion, according to Steve D. Owned Refinitiv. Earnings per share guidance was 4.71 to 4.73. Analysts looking for 4.75. Guidance for the next quarter uh, was revenue of around 7.82, looking for 8.07, and earnings per share of 1.2 versus 1.29. Uh, basically, what's going on here is sales cycle is getting stretched out a little bit um, and they're seeing some impacts from foreign exchange, which basically means that companies are a bit slower in renewing, a bit slower in signing up. Um, they're sticking with products they have rather than adding more on or uh, upgrading them or moving them forwards, I think is what I'm kind of uh, hearing on that.
1: The the guide on revenue, Steve, could you just give me that uh, again, please? The year or the quarter? Uh, for the year.
0: Uh, I think I have 31 billion as opposed to 31.8 expected.
1: That's interesting because they were actually guiding for about 800 million in FX impact. So essentially, that guide is on the money. Yep. Um. So I've just pulled some extra stats out of here, Steve. That um. That I was looking at when I looked at the uh, annual report. And the, the annual report, for for what it's worth, is the best annual report that you could read. The best presentation for anybody who's interested in Salesforce. They break it down in. In such a brilliant way, you can fully understand as you flick through these 60-odd pages, or it might even be 50 pages, and they just explain every aspect of their business and break it down for you so you can see how it's grown. So here's some of those things. So the service sector of Salesforce grew 23%. The sales sector grew 15%. Platform revenue grew 19%. Marketing and commerce grew 28%. And MuleSoft and Tableau, they grew 31%. Uh, they were also um, just showing us how good they are at MA. So exact target that they bought for two and a half billion has eight x its revenue in the eight years since they've uh, acquired it. Demandware has twelve x its revenue. Um, MuleSoft has twenty-three x its revenue, and Tableau has twelve x its revenue since they've got it. So I mean, they're kind of showing you there that they're doing a pretty good job uh, when it comes to acquiring these, you know, these companies. Just to let you know as well, just to add on. The difference between what they're guiding for and what they've actually done, uh, so the full year guidance, is what they managed to do in revenue in full in 2015. So, what Salesforce are actually expecting to add on is about 5 billion, give or take. And they did 5.4 billion in 2015. So, that is, you know that's not that wasn't that long ago steve to go from a 5.4 billion company to essentially a 31 billion dollar company you know you've got to factor in the fact that they've acquired you know a hatful of companies in that period mm. of time but um they're gonna do a big buyback steve did you spot that
0: i did see they're gonna do a big buyback of a sort yeah uh, i was reminded of it when you said in the case of stock-based comp you need to either uh, make sure you're growing it faster or offsetting it with a a buyback of a sort. And I found this kind of interesting. Salesforce has never done a, a significant amount of buying back before, but they've their board has approved, I think, $10 billion, uh, in buybacks. And at the time I looked at the market cap, obviously this moves around and may well be in a different place by the time this goes out, that was about 5.5% of the uh, market cap to come back in. I didn't pick up what time period that's over and whether that's opportunistic or whether it's to be done in the next year or in the next quarter or whatever, but... Um, I found myself wildly in favor of this. Uh, I'm not a uh, Salesforce uh, owner, by the way, but if I were, I would be strongly in favor of it. What did you think?
1: Yeah, I, I'm also um, wildly in favor of it as well. I think it's about time they started trying to counter the dilution that they offer um, You know, in, in getting stuff on board. I'm expecting less stock based compensation anyway next year and i'm expecting this to potentially even bring that number down you'd hope 10 billion brings the number down wouldn't you um but just a a couple of other things i noticed they've now got an a plus s&p global rating and they've also generated about five and a half billion in um operating cash flow last year as well which is is quite impressive for a company like salesforce especially when you know the difference between their non-gap and gap is uh, is astronomical so when you when you end up looking at something on uh, i don't know yahoo and you're screening for a pe ratio or something like that there's just no way you would consider it because the pe is probably going to be about 300 but right. in reality uh, salesforce is a, a a completely different kind of company they also announced uh, that they are now officially the fastest growing enterprise software company ever steve with 21% year on year growth that actually beats uh, from inception uh, microsoft oracle and sap as well so uh, there's plenty in this um, this guide that you know I could tell you about, but uh, I mean we've got to press on, Steve, because we've got a lot more stocks to cover. Are you buying yeah. Salesforce?
0: Um, no, but I'm never really quite sure why. Um, I feel like it's not a sector I understand terribly well, but it feels like everything was written there for me. Churn was pretty low again, seven and a half percent. Um, if this company starts buying back shares, then I think good things are going to come its way because I actually think this stock is kind of undervalued at the moment with where it is, especially down another 7.5%. I,
1: I agree.
0: What have you been looking at, Steve, earnings-wise? So-
1: So, earnings for me, uh, I thought I would have a quick look into it. Um, So, this was an interesting report. They reported on Tuesday. um, And at face value, this looked pretty awful. Um, Gross margin, operating margin, net margin, all fell. And that led to uh, less free cash flow, uh, less net income. In fact, both of these were nearly down 50% in the quarter year-on-year comparisons. But the next day, the stock went up 6%. Um, so here's why. Uh, last year, due to the plague, um, Americans were allowed to defer filing their taxes for about three to six months. Some of them had a little bit longer because they also had a storm. Um, <laughs> so this meant that filing should have been done in April, uh, i.e. the quarter before this quarter, um, if that makes sense. Um, so bumper period for Intuit, um, the quarter before um as we, I think we reported when it came in. They make a, a significant amount of their money through their TurboTax products when it comes to yearly uh, filings. So reverting back to the old dates meant that we can't compare year-on-year quarters because they're just not like for like anymore. Uh, and this also explains why the last quarter looked so incredible and we thought it was great. Um, in terms of consensus, they beat on revenues, they beat on service revenues, beat on small business revenues, beat on credit karma, beat uh, sorry, missed on consumer revenues. Beat an operating income, beat an operating margin, beat an adjusted EBS, and uh, sort 28% miss on cash from operations, which was quite an interesting, uh, an interesting dip. Um, in terms of segments, QuickBooks grew 34%, online services grew 116%. Although you've got to, this includes Mailchimp, which is a recent acquisition. Without it, it grew about 29%. International revenue tripled, uh, but you've got to understand again, this is Mailchimp again. Um, tax grew about 1% for the reasons described earlier. And Credit Karma grew about 17%. In the quarter, they bought back about $2 billion worth of shares. They've got on authorization to purchase another $3.5 billion. Uh, they boosted the dividend by about 15%. Uh, so looking pretty shareholder friendly to me. But not that friendly because they issued a lot of shares when they were uh, buying MailChimp and integrating MailChimp. So whilst this softens dilution, shares outstanding actually still managed to go up by about 3%. Year over, yeah. Um, forward guidance, Steve, I'll just give you that quickly. was good for the next quarter, expecting revenue growth of about 24%, EPS growth of about 23%. Both of these was just slightly under Wall Street's expectations. Uh, for the full year, they're expecting growth of 15% on revenue and about 16% on earnings per share. Both of these actually beat Wall Street expectations, uh, creeping up to about $15 billion in in revenue. So this one's getting towards the law of big numbers for growth, um, combined with they think they're going to have some pretty muted expectations for credit karma with the potential recession headwinds, I think, Credit uh, is looking a bit a bit sticky going forward. But what do you think, Steve?
0: That credit space is interesting, isn't it? With um, Mm. interest rates going up, I'm never quite sure what to make of that. On the one hand, I feel like demand for mortgages, loans, all those kind of credity types of products is going to be lower um, as they get basically more expensive. So that makes sense to me. I own experience in this kind of uh, space. But I also kind of think, well, in that situation, people are going to want to be a bit more careful uh, as well and therefore looking uh, maybe stuff like Intuit does all right uh, in this sort of situation. i take your point about the kind of, yeah you put it as law of large numbers, I guess I was thinking of kind of growth runway, the horizon coming into view a little bit. Um, that's what you expect from companies
1: that are buying back stocks and distributing dividends and stuff, right? Starting to mature. I think uh, mm. the growth from here is going to be incremental growth on those products that we we, we discussed earlier. And then I think they just keep tacking on uh, new businesses when they find something that they actually like. Um, and I'm surprised at the moment that they're being so shareholder friendly because all the sort of software business that a software conglomerate would want to bring under its wing have got quite considerably cheaper in the last year or so.
0: Yeah, I was sort of thinking that as well, looking around and um, looking at quite a lot of these, many of which I don't feel particularly qualified to distinguish good from bad uh, with. But it does seem like an interesting company, uh, time for a company with cash available uh, to kind of be acquisitive. With um, paying a dividend, uh, do you think that gets in the way of things? That There's now an expectation on a dividend that didn't ought to be there
1: uh yes and no but they've been paying this dividend for eight years and it's still mm. only about half a percent so i think it's sort of a distraction i guess uh it, it, it's just a way that they're trying to just differentiate themselves i guess a little bit and hey look we're really shareholder friendly we're doing both of these things but at the, at the sort of stage into it's that I, I lean towards wanting them to and look for opportunities rather than give me the money I, i'm sure they can do a better job with they've, it they've proven that on a number of occasions
0: i think that's the right way to think about things for what it's worth i mean this is i mentioned earlier the one thing i don't like about amazon here's the one thing i don't really like about Berkshire hathaway for what it's worth they have a a policy regarding dividends of saying look if we think we can turn one dollar into more than one dollar we should keep it uh, rather than distributing it to you as one dollar Um, I don't think that's the right metric to use. I think it's uh, the way to do it is say, look, if we think we can grow this better than you can grow it, uh, we should keep it. That Mm. may be turning it into more than $1. It might be that I can compound it better than they can, partly because I'm a smaller operation and therefore have a wider universe available uh, Mm. to me. One of the things we hear a lot from Berkshire is, you know, size makes it different to find things that are able to move the needle and so on. So I'm not sure the the $1 for $1 thing is the right thing. I think it's to do with you being able to use it better than I can, and your size, in the case of Intuit, might be an advantage uh, in that sort of situation. You might be able to go and acquire something that you can't.
1: It's an interesting argument from Buffett there, because the flip side of that is, like, you know, he bought C's candies back in the day, and yes, that doesn't produce a meaningful amount to the bottom line of Berkshire Hathaway, but if you had 10 C's candies, it would. So yeah. I've never understood why Berkshire doesn't really want to I, they don't do anything to these companies. They're just out looking for good management uh, to run these businesses themselves and report to them once a year. And you know they're they're pretty much left to do their own thing. So I've never fully understood that argument from Buffett. I get that he thinks his time is valuable and therefore he should maybe just buy the the companies that will provide the returns that move the needle. But you know ten small companies is as good as one medium sized company in my eyes, and they've been very very good at buying these sort of companies and teaching them how to make money. Mm.
0: So we've mentioned dividends and we've mentioned Buffett,
1: uh, do you have anything
0: you want to finish on with uh, Intuit before we move on to stocks for Paul? No, that was it from Intuit. Okay, dokes, I'll kick things off then with what was going to be my stock for uh, Paul. I was going to give Paul some information about this. I've already told Steve what stock it is, so no point in him guessing. But you can have a guess at home if you like. Um, company was founded in 2015, which makes it a fairly newish uh, sort of company by these standards. Has a dividend yield of around 4% because I'm taking this stocks for pool thing absolutely seriously. Um, it's one of the 11 companies that controls everything you buy. And I think given the kind of Buffett hint here, I've probably given it away. But since there's always a question involved here, Steve... Um, 11 companies control everything that you buy. How many of them can you name, do you think?
1: Oh, gosh. Probably a few. I have, have a go. Other. Yeah. So Unilever. Ding. Mars. Ding. Uh, Kraft Heinz. Ding. Uh, Smith and Nephew. Is that one? What they're called nope. now? GSK. No, they make,
0: like, hospital equipment. Anyway, uh, GSK is not one either. Oh.
1: Oh, I might have, have ran out at three.
0: Mm. Uh, there are a few more here if I tell you one you'll get another one Coke is one Pepsi there's another one um, um, Switzerland left. one Nestle there's another one uh, what else do we have Cereal's one <laughs> Kellogg's <laughs> yep um, used to be part of Kraft Heinz one Ooh, what used to be part of Kraft Heinz one Cadbury's oh of course uh, so Mondelez yep. Mondelez yep a uh, bit like GSK. Uh, go on. Johnson Johnson. Of course, yeah. Um, have we said P&G yet? No, P&G. That's about all I can think of at the moment anyway. But the one of those that I was interested in was Kraft Heinz for the moment. So Buffett's second, seventh largest stock, as we mentioned last time, I think. Um, and I get the impression that people might think I'm trolling Paul here. Kraft Hines, Really? Uh, So Kraft Heinz, whose stock is down 52% over the last five years. Kraft Heinz, who uh, shrunk their dividend instead of growing it in 2018, and it's gone nowhere since. Kraft Heinz, who just brought out a hot dog-flavoured frozen lollipop. (laughs) Yep. Uh, (laughs) Kraft Heinz. Um, But I think that there's more to this stock than maybe meets the eye if you just use screeners uh, for the moment, or even just look at the history uh, a little bit for the moment. So historically... It's been a bit of a mess, which means that if I'm going to try and pitch a stock to my imaginary Burgundy investor, I'm going to have to try and find some sort of reason for thinking that things are going to be different in the future to how they were in the past, Uh, fairly obviously. So let's start off with how they were in the past in that case. Uh, They were born in 2015 when Buffett owned Heinz, bought Kraft, owned Kraft, um, uh, with an operating partner, 3G. Uh, And 3G went about doing 3G things to the new company, which was basically trying to cut all the costs out of it. And in the short term, it worked really, really well. Uh, They produced some good earnings and they had some very good margins. But the trouble is, when you have a business like Kraft Heinz or any kind of brand-based business, you have to invest in your brands. You can't just ax all your marketing spend because otherwise people will just ignore all your brands uh, and they will no longer be relevant and you will no longer be able to sell anything. And unfortunately, this is basically what happened. So in 2019, they had a massive 15000000000 billion write-down. Uh, on some of their brands, think like Teladoc uh, for the moment, having done a massive merger and then found they overpaid for it one way or another. But around this time, they also appointed a guy called Miguel Patricio, um, who effectively tried to get them off this idea of axing everything we can find, reinvesting in brands and, yes, looking for efficiencies, but trying to invest in a uh, way that will put some money behind uh, Kraft Heinz and its brands and move things forward. Um, and what they've managed to do is they've got their R&D uh, and their marketing spend to about 6% of sales, up from four and a half or so. They've managed to bring down their enormous debt pile from 31 billion to 21 billion uh, over the last sort of four years or so. And that's coming down a fair bit. Their debt was the thing that was really worrying me at one stage and made them look kind of highly unattractive. So here are some numbers compared to uh, the others that we've seen here. Their net margin, or their operating margin, sorry, is 19.6%. Kellogg's has an operating margin of around 12. Unilever of about 19, but slightly under. Kraft Heinz, Mondelez of around 17. Pepsi of around 14. It's got decent margins uh, here, and it manages to maintain them fairly well. And here's the last bit I have as a kind of kicker on this. Kraft Heinz is a company that everyone wants to move away from. Uh, no one wants to be eating packaged foods and presumably plastic cheese, and I don't really know what they make all that well. It's Paul's job to know these sorts of things. I suspect he lives on them. But um, where people start getting under pressure uh, in their wallets and they have to start making efficiencies and savings and so on and so forth, I wonder whether this is something they start ending up moving towards. We'd all like to be shopping in the fresher part of the supermarket around the kind of perimeter and buying organic things and so on and so forth. But that ain't easy uh, when the cost of your... Um, uh, gas bill went up by 300%. So I wonder whether we might find people kind of reverting back to effectively fairly cheap uh, stuff. And Craft Heinz has a bit going for it uh, in this kind of area. So I think this is a company that's better than it was sort of four years ago when everyone was laughing at it. Uh, the stock has been an absolute turd. But um, it's in a different sort of outlook at the moment. It's got less debt and it's got a, a different approach to trying to run itself. I think this is kind of interesting. I commend it to Paul is the company that will pay a dividend of around 4% every June, September, uh, December and March,
1: I think. Something like that. Just having a really quick look at their their Debt Pal, and that uh, definitely has been coming down as well. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I'll, I'll see where um, Miguel Patricio was from. And he was from um, AB InBev. Yeah, uh, which is so a, a debt city, push? Push. What I can imagine. Yeah, which is an absolute debt city. So if anybody knows about how you know how important it is to get their debt down, so you can actually you know have a functional business, it's uh, it's probably this fella, and that's exactly what he looks to be doing at Craft Hounds, and actually it looks a lot more interesting than I thought it was. The first the the first words that came to mind when you said Craft Hounds, like, this is just full of debt. Why is he putting this forward? But actually. That balance sheet isn't as leveraged as you think it is anymore, and it actually looks quite a bit rosier than I thought it was.
0: Yeah, it's another one where its trailing PE ratio has some weird stuff going on on it, so I think it says it's at a trailing PE ratio of maybe about 30-odd. Hmm. But it's at about 13 on a forward one, which is sort of more normal uh, in in various ways. So, it's one that doesn't immediately jump out here, and it's you see lots and lots of kind of, I'm not going to say lazy, but... Um, fairly easily written articles about what a terrible investment it's been for uh buffett and so on and i think there's some truth to that for what it's worth it's been uh, fairly terrible so far but i'm not sure that's because the thing's in terminal decline and i wonder whether i wonder whether this has been a stock that's been turning itself around and is now approaching the kind of interesting bit of that turnaround towards the end bit
1: yeah i would agree with that i'm just looking at the last four earnings reports as well they've they've beaten on uh all four in a row and they've beaten by you know healthy margins 11.73 25 on the bottom line 13.25 on the bottom line uh, they've only beaten by 2.62 but you'd assume analysts after being absolutely thrashed three times in a row have probably upped that, <laughs> <laughs> that those eps estimates a little bit but well, in fact they have you can see they've upped them by nearly 10p so sorry 10 cents so hey uh, yes i like that that's that's quite interesting to me um i like that one what you got uh, so I will, well, I mean, I like to sort of make Paul guess. So I'm going to leave it for you guys at home to guess. Uh, but my company dates back to about the 1960s. It was founded as Hansen's Building Products. Uh, primarily, it makes bricks and blocks and other peripherals for the construction industry. But it's bricks and blocks that I'm going to focus on for the sort of vast majority of this. So. For the uninitiated, I just wanted to give a really, really quick guide on how a wall and a ground floor is constructed. Um, internal side of a house is almost always block work. These are the larger gray blocks that you see on site. Uh, the external bits that you actually visually see when you, when you look at a house, they're, they're brick. If your house is rendered which is when they paint it with a concrete spray uh, it's likely that you have blocks on both sides of the cavity it's much quicker to install and it's ugly but it's going to get covered in a painted concrete spray so you'll never see it In between the two is what's known as a cavity. This is what they're stuffed full of insulation. Uh, Laughably, this has been one of the only developments we've made in an industry in this kind of department. They just made the cavity bigger so they could fit more insulation in it and make it more thermally efficient and call this like development. Um, To give you an idea of how many blocks are used in an average three bed house, it's about 22,000. And there's about five times that in bricks. So the ground floor of, your, of a modern house is likely made of beam and block, which is a series of concrete lantel, uh, lintels um, spanning wall to wall. And in between the lintels is a concrete block, the same ones that they use on your walls. Um, so we build it this way because it allows you to suspend the floor off the ground and in case of any kind of light flooding but it also retains its its strength and it's less springy than if you use a, a suspended timber floor. And you don't need to treat it and it doesn't rot every sort of 80 years and you end up falling through your floor. Uh, so I mentioned all of that just because I want you to get a sense of just how much block and brickwork there is in a modern construction. So anyway, I want to give you a little bit of history on the company uh, before we move on. So through the years, this company has been like a mad acquirer. So it's uh, acquired... Um, Thermalite, which is a block maker. Uh, Marshall's Flooring, a beam and block floor manufacturer. Uh, Red Bank and Formpave, both of these are in the sort of chimney and chimney pot manufacturers. Uh, and arguably, its most important acquisition, it acquired the London Brick Company. So I've got a question for you, Steve. Like you got a question for me. Uh, it's called the London Brick Company because the bricks are still made to this day in? Uh, Bangladesh. Peterborough. <laughs> oh. Tough luck, Steve. <laughs> uh, so a little bit more history. In 2007, they were actually acquired themselves by a cement manufacturer called Heidelberg. Heidelberg actually broke them up and sold a remainder of them off to a private equity firm who in the following years spun out the UK operation and renamed it to the uh, name it has today. Uh, It was finally admitted to the FTSE in 2016 and is now firmly in the FTSE 250 so since then it's actually acquired Bison which is a a hundred year old prefabricated uh, concrete construction company. This is to dip its toe into off-site construction where the house itself is shipped in full to site rather than being built on site. It also is about to complete work on Europe's biggest uh, biggest ever brick factory right here in the UK, uh, which will allow Forterra to double its current capacity on that site and lift its total production to around 600 million bricks per year. So the market itself is actually in shortfall. So in 2008... Britain made about 2.8 billion bricks a year, but since we've had the crash and the slowdown of the housing economy, that actually killed off a lot of our manufacturers and our local manufacturers. Now we're down in about the 2 billion range, and we actually need 2.4 billion, even though we don't build enough houses. So we have to import the rest, which is just not cost effective. Any money you save on labor is completely diminished in logistics because of the weight uh, of the product. So. I guess in short the battle for those remaining 400 million bricks is on so moat yep there's a moat here london bricks is the absolute jewel in their crown these are used in 20 percent of all buildings in the uk so even if you think that um, we won't be buying new houses as much in this impending recession we're about to have um that will lead to more extensions because owners will crave more space so theoretically up to 20% of all the extensions that we're about to have, we'll be looking for a London brick, brick match because nobody wants a match where the, uh, uh, nobody wants an extension where the bricks don't match. That looks silly. Uh, they've got a bit of pricing power as well, Steve. They've passed on, uh, rising energy and labor costs to their customers. They've actually increased their prices by as much as 25% this year. So I had a quick look at the customers for you. They've got the ones you would expect. Uh, they're suppliers to builders merchants such as MKM, Travis Perkins, to Hughes, Gray, Old Nationals. They're also suppliers to major house builders like Persimmon, Barrett Homes and Belway Homes. They also make concrete products too. So these have been used in car parks and hotels and hospitals. Uh, and they've been involved in really prestigious projects um, such as University College London, Alder Hey Children's Hospital in Liverpool, uh, even Wembley Stadium attended this company for its concrete so risks. I've got some risks for you, Steve. No stomp for Paul would be complete without me giving some risks. So here, what I think this companies are. The the shortfall in bricks has led to a rise in what's called non-standard construction. So in the UK, we're really trying to plug that shortfall. And we're doing some really in sort of inventive things. Uh, the most direct competitor is something called ICF, which stands for insulated concrete formation. These are like wood fiber blocks. Of, absolutely massive one side of it's already pre-insulated they arrive that way you lay them on top of each other and when you get to a certain height you jam steel rods down them and you pour concrete down them Uh, that's one way the other way you do it is you do pre-cut polystyrene it sort of links together like a big jigsaw it's all numbered so you can't possibly get them wrong Uh, and then you hold them in clamps and then when you get to a certain height again steel rods and you pour concrete now these are laughably bad um (laughs) They, they literally the minute you start to pour concrete down them because it's just it is essentially polystyrene the stuff that your tv turns wrap you know is, is packed with uh, it starts to split the concrete comes pouring out of them the people on site are desperately trying to clamp them back into place while getting covered in concrete and they belly out and they just i mean i can't see it catching on it might improve um but i just i i can't see it um What it does win on is thermal performance. They absolutely wipe the floor with bricks and blocks on thermal performance. So it depends on where you see us going. So financials, this group owns almost all of its assets. It has about 2,000 acres of land, has 17 factories around the country, so there's very little pricey rents on the balance sheet. It's also launched a power purchase agreement with a dedicated solar farm, and that anticipates it will cover about 70% of its energy costs. It's spending about $4.1 on rooftop solar over the next couple of years to supply another 5%. So these guys are laser-focused on optimization at the moment. Sales increased 26% year-on-year. Profits up 28% year-on-year. Whilst I think this is going to slow in the short term, it's clear to me we've got a bit of runway here. Uh, If we start building the houses that the UK desperately needs, um, you know, there's definitely growth. I'm going to give you a small caveat that this was against some pretty poor comps, and it's actually a couple of percent under what they achieved in 2019, but they do have a factory that's been refurbed at the moment, so that explains that. Capex, Steve. Came in at about $21.3 million, uh, of which $15.8 million was related to the new factory refurb I discussed earlier. Uh, there's more capex come, uh, to come too because they're going to close a second factory for a similar size refurb once they bring the Desford factory back online. Uh, this is pretty smart in my books. I think the best time to refurb is when demand is uh, showing signs of quietening down. But you can sub that one time expenditure off if you want and add an extra 15.8 million to that bottom line, and you can see the sort of company that you could potentially be be buying here. So, I'll give you a quick rundown of the other financials £2.70 a share, market caps just over 600 million. PE is about 11 over the trailing 12 months. It's buying back about 40 million of its stock, give or take. That's about. Six and a half percent of the floor. It has ten million a debt thirty-four million in cash at the moment. It's pretty cash generative. This allows the chief exec to pay an attractive growing dividend. Last year it was eleven point three percent per share on EPS of about twenty-six p, uh, and that's about four point two five percent yield, Steve, while being on that sort of fifty percent payout ratio. So there's a bit of flex there. Uh, so my question to you, and uh, you, Steve, and you at home, is why are you bothering? messing around picking up your favorite house builder, where you can get expect uh, it can get some exposure to the industry as a whole here
0: it's a very good question um i was looking at that uh looking at just now actually in the numbers for valuation actually look even better than you said i've got it marked at 584 million of a uh, market cap which gets you a dividend of four and a quarter price earnings ratio of around 10 <laughs> um and I'm increasingly becoming unsure. I mean, if there was uh, if there was a reason I would worry about this, it's pretty well covered already, which is that I would kind of assume that bricks were a bit of a commodity, at least to an extent. But they're not, for two reasons. One, you made the point about extensions, that there's a need to match them here, so they're not all the same. And the other thing is you mentioned pricing power, which you definitely don't have in the case of commodities. Um, so, I'm kind of taken with this one. I like the look of this quite a lot. Uh, to be honest with you, i I have this idea that, well, uh, I had a look, there's no debt, so that kind of PE uh, becomes sort of relevant um, Mm. to me in a certain way. I struggle to see what Paul's not going to like in this particular one.
1: It's got literally everything for him. It's got a dividend, and that's all he looks for.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I don't own a UK house builder. I think Paul does... For what it's worth. And I'm... Does he own Taylor Wimpy? Does he own some sort of house builder? Yeah, um, yeah I he think does. He owns... They all pay dividends, right? So... Yeah,
1: he owns one of their big dividends, so he'd be really attracted mm. to them.
0: Yeah. Oh, I like that a lot as a, a stock. But how about the rest of you? What do you think of Footer? What do you think of Kraft Heinz? We've both gone for things that have dividend yields over 4%, uh, one way or another. So, um, we'd be interested in what you'd think of this one. It's, it's not our kind of usual game, big dividend yielding stocks. But... Um, it is absolutely the case that we're, we've been looking at the kind of more risk-off end of things as it is. Uh, do you own a stock, by the way, Steve? I don't own Kraft Heinz at the moment.
1: I, yes, I bought Forterra about... Um, well, in full disclosure, I bought... I own Salesforce, I own it and I own Forterra, so it's literally been a show about my stocks and Teladoc. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a big list of stocks I own now. I, I bought Forterra... I've only bought a really small position. It's about half a percent of my portfolio. I started buying it about a month ago, Uh, Just before its earnings came out, and then I saw its earnings, and I had a good read through its uh, annual statement, and I've bought about another half a percent of my portfolio on top of that. I'm not intending to buy an awful lot more because I don't want massive exposure to to, to UK house builders or, or basically to the construction market, but I do feel like this is within my circle of competence.
0: Yeah, very much so. Uh Okay, well, um, that's us then for uh, this week. I've been Steve W, I've had Steve D with me. I'm off to go and pack all of my podcasting stuff into a box and see where I turn up next week. Thanks for listening, bye for now.